0: Chapter Thirty Five Part Two of Margaret Sanger by Margaret Sanger This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty Five Part Two A Past Which Is Gone Forever. Enlarged portraits of Lenin and Stalin were in all public buildings. Their statues were everywhere, in every square, on every corner a major industry of russia seemed to be to find new poses for stalin standing up lying down writing reading often just his head definitely recognizable in spite of the predominance of red was designed in flower beds one of the most delicate attentions was to give him a different colored necktie on different days the plants were kept in pots to make this charming gesture possible. After the revolution, when peace had come, connoisseurs from various countries had been invited to examine the recovered statues, rugs, tapestries, and objets d'art stolen from the palaces and churches. One by one, the priceless paintings were displayed, specialists rendered their opinions, commercial dealers furnished appraisals stenographers took down every word the same was done with the lapis lazuli tables the snuff-boxes the court jewels the interesting part of the new arrangement was that the interpretation was entirely marxian pictures instead of being hung according to the orthodox history of art were fitted into the Industrial Revolution. A certain Madonna was not admired for its qualities of color or form, or as a thing of beauty in itself. The guide explained to you that it was created at such and such a time when the church was trying to get a hold over the people, when artists were starving and had to look for their means of livelihood to the patronage of the church. Later, in the Kremlin at Moscow, we saw fantastic and incredible riches, jeweled saddles, a whole set of harness studded with turquoise, a huge casket-cloth embroidered with thousands of pearls. In order to place the period of the latter, I asked Tanya where it had come from. She replied in her precise English, "'You see,' It is for to cover the dead. You see, in Russia there was such a custom. When they died, they put them in the ground. It was such a custom, you see, to cover them with cloths. She spoke of the Tsarist regime as though it had been centuries ago. One of the pictures was a Christ removed from the cross and lying on the ground. Tanya said... People used to come here, and they even kissed it. This she uttered in the tone of scorn of a very youthful generation shocked and horrified at the ancient traditions. Our hope is in the young people, she said frequently. But how old are you? Oh, I'm thirty-two, as though she were doddering grant and i were once walking by a group of children when a small boy pointed at us and remarked ah there go some of the dying race to them all Americanski were capitalists the marxian ideology had been applied to every phase of life h g accompanied by jip his biologist son had flown over from London. Since he wanted an opportunity to go around alone, he rather resented being so closely guarded and courteously guided. After talking with Stalin, he had come to the conclusion that the dictator had no understanding of economics. He was somewhat annoyed at the constant interpretation of everything in terms of politics." And of having marks stuffed down his throat at every turn. At the schools, you might ask what kind of mathematics they taught. Marks. And what system of engineering? Marks. No matter what the question, the answer was marks. The anti religious museum, once a cathedral, was directly across from the Astoria each half-hour little girls who seemed hardly more than ten or twelve their sleeves hanging down over their fingertips with great dignity conducted excursions of peasants through their lecture started with the fundamental principle that the earth was round a bass relief of the world was underneath the huge pendulum which hung from the dome if you stood there long enough, you saw it swing from one point to a further one. They were trying to show that it was within man's power to make his own heaven. Here were kept the relics of the churches, the icons laden with silver and gold wrung from the poor peasants in the past. Actual concrete things were reduced to their simplest terms on large, poster-type murals which depicted stories, a necessary practice, since the muzzocks were so generally illiterate. In one, a kulak was coming to the priest, with a sick child in his arms, asking for prayers to cure its illness. The priest, fat and clad in rich robes, shook his head, saying, "'You must bring money for the saint.' THE SAINT WILL NOT CURE YOUR CHILD UNLESS HER ARMS ARE COVERED WITH SILVER. BUT THE KULAK HAD ONLY HIS FARM. MORTGAGE IT, AND GET THE MONEY, THE PRIEST ORDERED. SOON THE KULAK RETURNED WITH SILVER, AND THE MURAL SHOWED HOW NOW THE SAINT'S ARM WAS ALMOST HIDDEN. BUT STILL THE CHILD REMAINED SICK. THE SAINT'S HALO IS BARE, SAID THE PRIEST. At last, the whole figure was silvered, but the baby died just the same. Opposite this mural was pictured the Soviet way. Their father carried the baby to the hospital, where nurses with gauze across their mouths took it preciously, bathed it carefully, laid it in bed. The entire sterilizing process was illustrated the doctor in white gown and cap, scrubbing and washing each hand five minutes as marked by a clock. Finally, you saw the child, healthy and well, jumping into its mother's arms. The people stood there looking, their imaginations fired. They said, "'This is what is happening to us.' Most particularly... I wanted to investigate what had been done for women and children in Russia, to learn whether they had been given the rights and liberties due them in any humanitarian civilization. Grant rose, as she was known to me, and I went to the Institute of Protection of Motherhood and Childhood, a vast establishment stretching over several miles, with model clinics, nurseries, milk centers, and educational laboratories. I was overwhelmed in contemplating the undertaking. There was no doubt that the government was exerting itself strenuously to teach the rudiments of hygiene to an enormous population that had previously known nothing of it. Russia was also aiming to free women from the two bonds that enslaved them most—the nursery and the kitchen. All over the country were creches connected with the places they worked. Children were the priceless possessions of Russia. Their time was planned for them from birth to the age of sixteen, when they were paid to go to college, if they so desired. No longer were they a drain or a burden to their families. Not only were teachers or parents forbidden to inflict "'corporal punishment, but children might even report their parents "'for being vindictive, ill-humoured, disorderly, "'and in many cases they did so. "'In one divorce dispute as to custody of the offspring, "'the father argued that the mother was bad. "'The judge asked, of what does her badness consist? "'She is nervous and loses her temper.' The judge agreed she was not fit for motherhood. Furthermore, Russia was investing in future generations by building a healthy race. If there were any scarcity of milk, the children were supplied first, the hospitals second, members of the Communist Party third, industrial groups fourth, professional classes fifth, and old people over fifty had to scrape along on what they could get unless they were parents of communists or closely associated with them i was eager also to find out what had been done about the study carried on by professor tushnoff of the institute for experimental medicine on so-called spermatoxin a substance which it had been rumored produced temporary sterility in women. I made an appointment with him, but a shock awaited me. He had tried out his spermatoxin on 30 women, 22 of whom had been made immune for from four to five months, but now all laboratory workers had been taken from pure research and set at utilitarian tasks such as the practical effects of various vocations on women's health. Nothing concerning immunization to conception could be published in Soviet Russia. No information could be given out under penalty of arrest, and moreover, nothing could appear in a foreign paper which had not already been printed in Russia. In Tourist, the Government Tourist Bureau and Vox, the All-Union Society for Cultural Relations with Foreign Countries, had asked me when I had first arrived whom I wished to see and where I wished to go, and had offered to call up people on my list and arrange for visits, a service which had saved me much trouble and expense. In spite of this cooperative attitude, I was suspicious that much was being hidden from us. Before I had left America, I had heard I could see only what Russia presented for window-dressing, and with this in mind, I was on the alert. Both Grant and I wondered how the hospitals built under the Czars compared with recent ones. When I asked to be taken to a certain one, I was assured it was too far away, and, anyhow, it was being renovated. There was nobody there. I said to myself, Aha! Here is one of the forbidden sites. Whoever heard of a hospital equipped to handle thousands of patients being utterly empty? They are not going to let us see this, because it might speak in favour of the old in contrast to the new. Politely, but firmly, I insisted Again I was told there were so many other interesting things it would be a pity to waste my time going to see it. I found it difficult to say anything further without giving offense. Then Grant encountered a young American nurse from the Presbyterian Hospital in New York who spoke Russian. She also wanted to visit hospitals. We engaged a car of our own, and drove a good fifteen miles out of the city over horrible roads winding and dusty and badly paved and even pushing on as rapidly as we could we did not get there until late in the afternoon to our dismay we discovered not a patient doctor or nurse in the place only plasterers painters carpenters and cleaners pulling down and refurbishing we had lost half a day and were a little ashamed of our lack of faith. The night came to take the train for Moscow. Nobody called all aboard in Russia. Trains went right off underneath you when you had one foot on the platform and one on the step. They just moved and moved fast. But we clambered on and soon the leather seats were made into our beds they were so slippery that we kept falling out once at moscow we who were coming second class according to marxian procedure received the worst rooms at the hotel those who travelled third had the best i could not applaud the one selected for me it was directly over the laundry and the smells of cooking and suds floated through the window. I refused to stay, and was accommodated on the top floor where the servants had once lived. Moscow was as different from Leningrad as New York City from a sleepy Pennsylvania town. The people walked more quickly and seemed to be going somewhere, not simply wandering listlessly bedlam existed at the hotels but by now we were beginning to learn that the russians were so concerned with their own efficiency that they had no time to do anything to be in a hurry merely complicated matters i could wait but for the energetic rose it was torture to all specific requests they replied it cannot be it cannot be she had her own methods of coping with this, saying she did not wish to hear the word impossible. She had no intention of asking the impossible. Then, when they procrastinated with a little later, she countered, In America, we say now. Her triumph over dilatoriness came on health day. Since health was almost a god in Russia— all activities ceased on that occasion, and the populace of Moscow came together on Red Square. The spectacle was to start at two in the afternoon, but before it was light you could hear the songs of men, women, and children moving towards their appointed stations. Out of our party only thirty were privileged to receive tickets, and their names were posted mrs clyde and i were on the list but not grant or rose the previous day the numbers were cut to twenty that morning there were but sixteen and feeling ran high why haven't i a ticket fortunately for me i had been invited to lunch by ambassador william c Bullitt, who entertained lavishly and was helpful to traveling americans when i had met him back in new england i had never thought of him as an ambassador nor as a man skilled in dealing with the great problems that required strategy diplomacy political sagacity and a prime knowledge of economics and history i considered him rather as amusing an excellent dinner host and one to whom you could go when in difficulty sure that he would get you out. Perhaps this was what Russia wanted at that time more than anything else. No doubt he was then somewhat disappointed at the turn relations between Russia and the United States had taken. Russians on the whole admired him. They had not forgotten that, although he was not counted a proletarian— or in the category of jack reed he had lifted the cudgels for them in the early days when friends were needed the ambassador's little daughter Anne, aged ten officiated at the head of the table apparently enjoying herself the house in which they were living while the new embassy was being built had an architecture quite befitting what i imagined the style of russia should be a bit of the kremlin a bit of a mosque and a bit of an indian palace on the way to the square after luncheon a wave of people surged between the rest of the diplomatic party and myself but i kept saying diplomatique and was bowed through to the grandstand meanwhile rose had been devoting her whole attention to tickets and there were no tickets the lucky holders lined up and filed off under a leader rose the ever resourceful donned a red bandana and said to the forgotten men in the party we'll make our own battalion she handed out slips of paper about the size of the tickets and then started grant and the harvard professors following her through the blare of music and the tramping troops and the pageantry of blue trunks and white shirts orange trunks and cerise shirts whenever anyone stopped rose she pointed ahead and repeated my open sesame diplomatique and they let her by until she reached the last barrier there the guard was suspicious of her password and challenged her then she spied another group coming up dashed over to the leader and exclaimed quick please explain that our interpreter has gone on with our tickets the woman looked unbelieving but still others arrived at that moment and the russian system collapsed under pressure in they all piled "'and Rose turned to her unknown benefactress. "'You don't know how grateful I am to you for getting us in.' "'The reply was, "'You don't know how grateful I am to you for getting us in. "'I am a tourist, too, and we have no tickets either.' "'Nobody seeing Moscow that day could have thought it a somber place. "'It was alive with song, happy faces, bright attire. The parade of a hundred thousand or more was one of the most marvelous spectacles for color, form, cadence, geometrical precision that I had ever seen human beings accomplish. Men and women were representing all sorts of games and sports—swimming, shooting, tennis, flying. There was nothing tawdry. Each company held aloft beautifully designed placards as it passed Stalin, who stood on top of Lenin's tomb. The dictator looked much like his pictures, with his heavy black mustache resembling the wings of a bird of prey. All day long and everywhere, you heard the International, over and over and over again. Each band struck up, as it approached the tomb, and kept playing as it swung on. Always the stirring song from those coming up, those far away, overtones, undertones, thrilling, insistent, now loud in your ears, now dimly echoing in the distance, a rhythmic motif symbolizing the onward march of young Russia. End of chapter 35 part 2